0: As a writer, I'm not interested in only telling stories of trauma. I think it's actually pretty dehumanizing to expect that. But I also want to write about love. I want to write about joy. I want to write about hope. So I think that all of those things are, are interconnected in what it means to be a person alive in the world.
1: Welcome to the For the Love Podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we're talking about the portrayals of Black women and men in the media with New York Times best-selling author, Britt Bennett. Hey, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. You probably know that we are in a series called For the Love of Black Lives, which has meant so much to me. The caliber of women that we've had on the show these last few weeks has just been beyond extraordinary and more than we deserve. It's been my real honor to join this national dialogue right now on racial inequality and the reckoning that we are facing. So this week, we are talking about the way our media portrays Black Americans, how that shapes the way that we treat Black stories and Black lives, the way that our storytellers choose to show people on screens, big and small, Or in the pages of our books, it has ripple effects, you guys. Like, especially for people whose stories are not traditionally centered. The stories we choose to tell, the stories we choose to fund, and then how we tell those stories speaks volumes about who our culture values and the dignity and worth our culture ascribes, right? The question here is, are we seeing a true portrayal of Black lives in the news we watch or read the movies, TV, books we consume, many would contend that we are not. And that misrepresentation of story might be shaping the way we view one another. So can you imagine, you know, for your own life, not being able to see yourself in the stories that are put out in the world about you, right? As a writer, I can tell you that I've had a lot of time to think about how important it is to see your story reflected in the world realistically. And so let me tell you, to see yourself in a story of beauty and nuance and struggle and triumph, this is what it means to have a voice. This is human. This is what happens when your thoughts and feelings and hopes and potential are reflected correctly back on you from the screen and the page. Because then you begin to think, maybe I'm not alone, or I can do this, or my life does matter. Because there it is right in front of you. Like my friend Joe Saxon says, you can't be what you can't see. So today we're gonna talk about black stories in our world with a writer, I promise you are going to be hearing from for decades. Decades. She just turned 30. Like, we are catching her as her star is on the rise. Today, we have Britt Bennett on the show. She was born and raised in Southern California, now lives in New York City. She is an honoree of the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35. She's written two novels. One is called The Mothers, and her latest is called The Vanishing Half, which we talk about a fascinating premise, which was an instant, number one, New York Times bestseller, and it's been talked about all summer since it came out. Britt is also a brilliant essayist, and her writing has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Paris Review, Jezebel, all over the place. She is someone I'm going to keep watching and reading because she's not just an incredible writer's writer. She's a thinker. That we need in our world. We are lucky to have her, and we are beyond lucky to have her on the show today. Get excited because I am about to introduce you to a writer that you are going to love. So, this conversation was fantastic, and I'm so pleased to share it here with the brilliant novelist and writer, Britt Bennett. Okay, Britt, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I am delighted to meet you, really. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you too. Same. Okay, look, so I have filled in our listeners with a little bit about your background, your writing credits, which are like, whatever, man, just like mind-blowing, impressive, and they give me real insight into what your top values are. And so I just wonder here at the beginning of the interview, would you mind telling us more about yourself in your own words, what your story is, where you're from, what your deal is, and then kind of where you're finding yourself in the world at this moment and the kinds of stories that you're working to tell?
0: Yeah, well, I'm from Oceanside, California, which is in San Diego, and I'm now living in New York. yeah, big difference. I went to grad school in Michigan, so I had that sort of climate swing already. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty traumatic. but I'm back on the, I'm on the East Coast now. and you know, I, I, I think I'm always just interested in telling stories usually that foreground the relationships between and among women, and usually between and among black women. I think I'm sort of complicated characters, I like difficult characters. I like stories that are just about those relationships, whether they're between sisters or mothers and daughters or friends. I think that those are always the the relationships I'm drawn to writing about, I think in part because those are the relationships that have been so important to me in my life.
1: So, okay, well, I'm going to talk to you about this. Obviously, the stories we see in the media, the way those stories are told, it matters. They especially matter for people whose stories are not traditionally centered. So I'm thinking right now about something you wrote about your dad when he was the deputy district attorney in LA and he was pulled over by the cops for what, you know, he assumed was a, like a routine traffic stop, but it was not that it was not a routine stop. I wonder if you would tell me about that story and how it gives a picture of a really common way that Black people are painted in the media version of what happened.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a story uh, that my dad had told me before when I was a kid. And I think it was one that I became sort of more interested in as I got older and wanting to know more of the details about what happened to him. But yeah, he was working for the the deputy DA's office and he was coming home sort of hilariously enough from a Bible study. Oh, it was almost like a cartoonish situation of how, uh, how sort of by the book he was as a person. And he was pulled over, they were looking for some other suspect and, you know, they pulled him over and held a gun to his head. And I think it was recently when I asked him like, well, what was actually going through your mind at that time? And he just said, you know, I was so, so stunned. I just, couldn't move, and I think that that's really what saved my life. Is that I could, I was so stunned that I could not actually react, and I think it was something about sort of talking to him about that story, which happened to him when he was, you know, probably around my age in his late twenties, and sort of asking him about that, and and, and sort of reevaluating that anecdote in the lights of in light of the conversations that are happening now about police violence, that became really interesting to me. So it was something that I wanted to write about in framing this idea of of you know racial profiling, which is not, you know, I think sometimes we focus on the intentions of people are, are people pretending to be racist, are these were the police who pulled him over racist. It doesn't matter really. It's 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 the fact that they they saw him and they made an assumption, they made sort of the snap judgment. And then afterwards there was no recourse. You know, he told me recently he filed uh, a complaint with the city and the city denied his complaint. And, you know, my dad was working for the DA's office. So the fact that this is something that was, you know, so traumatic and violent and potentially could have led to the end of his life and to my life not existing is something that I thought about a lot when I was writing that essay.
1: When things start to get a little busy and new tasks and priorities start to creep into your time, how do you respond to that? I know for me, it's easy to dive headfirst into tackling all the new stuff and kind of forget to take care of myself, which is not good for anybody in my life. So I found an easy tool that helps me stay on track, even when things get crazy, which is always, and that's Noom, N-O-O-M. You know that I love Noom because it's not a diet. It's just a easy to stick to way of life, that's all. And Noom doesn't tell you what to do and what not to do. It teaches you how to look inside your own mind and then make better decisions for yourself. The best way to incorporate a new habit into your routine is to start small. And Noom is perfect for that. It only takes 10 minutes out of your day, but man, do those 10 minutes have a huge impact. When I'm intentional about what I'm eating and making sure I'm moving my body enough and in ways that I love, I have so much more energy. And honestly, my mind feels calmer, I'm more relaxed. So for me, using Noom is just a win all around. So sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash for the love. I'll spell that for you. It's com slash for the love to start your trial today. You're worth this investment in yourself. I promise. Noom.com slash for the love. Okay, guys, back to our show. Obviously, we know story. It comes in all kinds of forms. You have made me think about this. One form of story that maybe a lot of people don't think of immediately is in the toys, right? We give our kids and dolls, action figures, etc. So, in the Paris Review a few years ago, you wrote an incredible essay about the American Girl doll Addie. How, for almost two decades, you know, Addie was the only Black American girl doll, and she was a slave. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that entire construct, a little bit more about that particular story, how that impacted you, you know, while you were young, and then ultimately what you wrote about it, what your assessment of that was. Yeah. I mean,
0: that essay really came from when I was studying abroad, we were all just up one night talking about American girl dolls. And I just remember having a white friend who said, that she'd always wanted to have an Addie doll, but she felt like she could not have that doll because the doll was an enslaved person. And it would be wrong for her as a white child to own that doll. And I just laughed because I had never thought about that. And, And then sort of, I started to kind of take that step back and start to think about what it meant for me to own this doll. And that was part of the essay was, was that interrogation. You know, I think that I always say that I I don't, I don't have answers when I'm writing, I only have questions. And I think that essay is just full of questions because there's, you know, this discomfort that I had when thinking about it, The, the idea that I received this doll when I was young enough to believe that Santa brought her to me, but simultaneously old enough to understand the horrors of slavery and learn about them. And there was something uncomfortable about that. But then at the same time, when I was talking to my mom about it, she was just like, well, I didn't even think about that. I just thought it was a really beautiful doll and I wanted you to have it. And I started to think about the fact that my mother had never owned a beautiful black doll when she was a child because they didn't make them that they could, you know, she could access. So it was all a really sort of complicated question that I was trying to untangle as I was thinking about this American girl doll and just the, you know, the complications of black American childhood and the notions that we have of innocence and how we don't think of black American children as innocent. The black American children can handle this at this age, but at the same time, there is something, I don't know, maybe something necessary in learning those, those sort of harsh histories that, you know, or is there that those, are all the options that I was writing towards in this essay. And as you can see, I still think that they're very thorny and complicated and I haven't sort of you know, figured out exactly how I feel about it. But to me, that was, I think, my favorite thing that I've written as far as nonfiction, because it was really fun to do the research into the connection between race and toys and dolls, which is really interesting and strange connection. And also it because it is such a complicated question of what did it mean for me to receive this toy that I thought about uncritically for <laughs> however many years of my life until one night I was up late in the UK with a bunch of friends talking about it. So I enjoyed writing that essay, but I think that it, it, it was me trying to untangle a bunch of questions about, about innocence and race.
1: I wonder if you could talk for just a minute longer about something you just said that when you said, you know, maybe we we have a hard time perceiving black children as innocent. Can you talk a minute more about that? Yeah, I mean,
0: part of what I was talking about in the essay was the idea that, you know, childhood is, a, is considered this protected class, right? We, we understand that children do not have as much knowledge. They don't have as much wisdom. They're not res- held responsible for the choices that they make we understand that, or at least we believe them to be fundamentally more innocent than adults. But that's not the case in the same way with black American children or black children. And part of what I talked about was you know, Tamir Rice, who's a child who was 12 years old, who was holding a, a toy gun and was shot immediately before the police cruiser even came to a stop. Even though the police were warned by the dispatcher that it was pro- he was probably a child sitting on a park swing, holding a toy gun. And I was just reading about a kid who had the cops called on him for playing with a toy gun during his Zoom class. And the school did not alert his parents. They called the police and the police arrived at this child's house for playing with a toy gun. So the idea of who is afforded that assumption of innocence, who is afforded that protection of innocence that we are generally afford children or, or we generally try to afford children, the fact that Black children are denied that. To me, there was something in that sort of that there's something in that about about the idea of this doll with this really traumatic backstory being offered to black children. And at that time, the only doll that was offered to black children. There was something about that question in that. And also, what did it mean for, for the black adults in my life to give me this child or give me this doll? What did that mean about, you know, how innocent they perceived me to be? Or if they knew that I would not be afforded that innocence and this was sort of an act of protection. So. It's a, it's a thorny question, and it's one that I, I continue to kind of think about, but I, those are the types of essays that I really love writing when when I don't know how I feel about something, and writing it is is me trying to figure it out.
1: That's good. I want to parley that forward because I think about Addie, I think about everything you just said, I think about the burden that Black storytellers encounter for their generation and those that come after them because it is upon you to tell these beautiful and innocent children. It's like both about the suffering that their, their people, their family members have endured for hundreds of years. But of course, if the story stopped there, it would just be tragic, but it didn't of course. So then there's these other stories of, of renewal and redemption and, and flourishing and, and innovation of black men and women, of course, but those stories are not always elevated to the top of our cultural vernacular of course. Dr. Mae Jamison said it well. She said never be limited by other people's limited imaginations. So you're a, you're a storyteller. How do you elevate black stories that truly inspire and are also still reflective of the black experience and why does it both matter? Like why do both, why do you why do you have to hold both of those one in each hand? <laughs> I mean, that's
0: a tough question. You know, I think, I mean, I I think as far as, you know, my life before I was a writer, I was a reader. And I I think about the stories that that I read that really impressed upon me in a lot of different ways. And and some of them were things like those Addy books that were, you know, there were some brutal realities (laughs) related in those books. I remember her her brother, I think, loses his arm in the war. And then she loses, I forgot which of the family members, like the family is never reunited, at, at, at least for what I remember. I haven't read this once in a while, but I don't remember this big happy ending of, oh, Addie escapes to the north and then her family is reunited. There was always that, there was a sense of, uh, of you know, really deep discomfort reading those books. And at the same time, there were those moments of triumph when she does get to Philadelphia and she does, you know, learn how to read and she does go to school and all those things were interconnected in that way. So, you know, I think that as a writer, I'm not interested in only telling stories of trauma. And I think it's actually pretty dehumanizing to expect that. (laughs) I think that read on what it means to be Black or, or marginalized in any way is actually really dehumanizing. And you know, I'm, I'm interested in telling stories of people who struggle because we all struggle. And, and that's what makes stories, yeah, it's human. And that's what makes stories interesting is to see somebody struggle. But at the same time, I also want to write about love. I want to write about joy. Um, I want to write about hope. So I think that all of those things are, are interconnected in what it means to be a person alive in the world. Um, and those are things that draw me to books as a reader and things that draw me to, to the types of stories that I want to write.
1: That's good. That makes me think of this, something you wrote, you said this, a stereotype does not have complex individual motivations. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Do you feel like, what's your perspective here? Do you think, feel like the stories that we see largely about black women or men or children largely fall into stereotype? And, and you know, why does portraying someone's motivation matter so much here? I'm curious what you think What do you see out there in the world right now in terms of portrayal?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's tough. I think as a writer, I'm I'm interested in motivation because that's what makes a character who they are. It's not just what choices a character makes, it's also why they make those choices. And those are all the things that are really interesting about all of the characters that we all love is thinking about that. And when I wrote that section, I was I was sort of talking about this idea of again of intent, which is something that I keeps swirling around Does it matter if your intentions are good if you still harm somebody? And the idea of of being asked to question the intentions of somebody who has committed harm and to judge their actions based on that, but to not care about the intentions of the person who has been harmed, it doesn't really matter about that person's intentions, uh, which which I always found frustrating and strange. So, you know, I think as far as, you know, I guess our larger landscape. I mean, it, it's tough. I think that you know there there certainly are some sort of limitations to to what types of stories are out there. But I also think that we are live at a really exciting time. Where we have things like, you know, shows like Insecure or, you know, Michaela Cole's show, I to Destroy You, which is brilliant. And then we have writers like Ya Jesse or Angela Flournoy or Tiari Jones. I mean, the people that we have, Jasmine Ward. We have so many people telling so many really exciting and, and complicated stories. So I do think that there can be ways in which there are, you know, types of characters or types of stories that people are familiar with and that they think sell that they think make money there can be those ways in which I think our culture, you know, props those up. But I think we have so many exciting writers that are pushing against that and writing against that right now. So, so it's an exciting time, I think, to be a Black writer.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So speaking of that, I'm curious, Britt, you are a woman of color telling Black stories largely, and a writer, obviously, who has attended prestigious universities. You've won a slew of literary prizes and all of its claim, I'd like to hear how has your experience as a professional writer differed from what you can see from the experience of your white colleagues? I would like to hear if you'd be willing to share what obstacles or even traumas or microaggressions um, you have faced that they obviously don't have to.
0: I mean, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I think that in a lot of ways I've been really fortunate that, you know, my publisher has been, you know, backing me. They, you know, bet on me from day one when I was 24 years old and sold my book. Incredible. Um, and That's you I, I mean, it is, and, and there's honestly no reason why they should have supported, why they should have, like, backed me at that time, you know, I'm just like, I was, you know, truly a child coming out of grad school, and they threw their weight behind me. So I've had a lot of support in that way, but that's not necessarily the experience of a lot of these, of other writers, you know, that I'm talking about. A lot of, you know, I think, like, T.R. Jones will talk about how An American Marriage was, was really sort of her breakthrough book very deeply into her career you know, and, and there was, you know, there was a, a lot of conversation earlier this year, publishing paid me, but we found out some really harrowing details about how little publishers have been willing to invest in their black writers. And, you know, the amount that you're investing in a writer that that's going to dictate how their books perform. And then when their books underperform, then that gives you more license to continue to not pay them. <laughs> it's just a, it's perpetuating cycle you know, and I, and I think, I think for me, a lot of it has been, you know, it's, it's hard to say what your experience is like compared to someone else. But, you know, I think a really eye opening moment for me was just, I was doing this event with Roxanne Gay and George Saunders. And I just was paying attention to the panel to see the types of questions that George Saunders received, versus the types of questions that Roxanne and I received. And I don't know that I had ever really noticed it in that way. But just all the questions he received were about writing. They were about craft. They were about storytelling. They were about the thing that he has studied and honed throughout his career. And all the questions that she and I received were about identity. And it, it was this, you know, this, she said this thing about, you know, how, uh, how women are, women are thought to, I'm paraphrasing horribly, but this, the idea that women are only believed to be experts about ourselves. And I think that that's true of any marginalized person. Uh, the idea that you can only be an expert about your experience and anything beyond that is just sort of beyond your, your kind of area of knowledge or expertise versus somebody like George Saunders, who was rightly acknowledged as an expert on writing and, and his, in and his, you know, his thoughts on that are sought appropriately. So it was moments like that that I saw, oh, this is what it's like to be like a white guy on a book tour and people want to ask you about how you write. Versus, you know, some of the questions Roxanne and I got were just like, what's it like being a black woman right now? And it had nothing to do with our books. So I think there are moments like that of, of realizing, interacting with people and, and realizing that for some readers, you kind of are, you know, some readers see you as a black person that they know almost. There's a weird familiarity that people have and they just want to ask you all of the questions that they've always wanted to ask a black person and it has nothing to do with your book. (laughs) So there are moments like that, that I think are are frustrating moments of sort of navigating, I guess, the world of publishing as as a Black writer. That being said, like I said, I I feel fortunate that, that I've mostly dealt with microaggressions, that I haven't, that I've had the support of my publisher, that they have been conscientious of what types of of opportunities to send my way and what types of ones to to shield me from because we know sort of what those environments might bring.
1: Right. You're keeping some pretty good company up there on that panel.
0: Yeah, it was crazy that I was invited to be on that panel.
1: (laughs) Guys, this is the time of year to get comfy and that includes a comfy bra, which is why I'm declaring myself the president of the third love fan club. You already know that I'm obsessed with 3rd Love bras. I can't even tell you how many I own at this point because they're so cute and so comfy that I don't even know I'm wearing them. Every 3rd Love bra is made with memory foam cups, no slip straps, and a scratch-free band. 3rd Love has more than 80 sizes, so you'll definitely find yourself somewhere in there. They have band sizes from 30 to 48 and cups from AA to I, including half cups. And Third Love gives you a perfect fit promise because they stand behind their products. So if you don't love your bra, you have 60 days to return it. And listen, you can find your new favorite bra starting at just $45. So just $45 for something you're going to wear every single day that's so comfy, you won't even know it's there. That is a solid investment. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 10% off your first order. So go to thirdlove.com slash for the love now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash for the love for 10% off today. All right, back to our show. I'd like to hear a little bit about your writing process as a writer. I'm, I'm a writer, but I write nonfiction. And so it's different genre. I am endlessly fascinated with novel writers. And those of you who can craft a story just out of your brain, out of your thoughts, you you invent thoughts and you write them on paper. It feels like a miracle to me every time. Have you written since you were little? I know you were a reader. Have you also written?
0: Yeah, I used to write little short stories when I was a kid. I've always, yeah, since I was, I don't know, second or third
1: grade, I wanted to write. You did. Wow. So you had a sense early on, this can be my work. I can do this. This will be my, I'll make a living. I'll be a writer. No,
0: (laughs) I didn't have that sense. I, I wanted to. You know, I never knew, I didn't know a living writer when I was a child. I just thought of writers as, you know, dead people that were on your bookshelf and, I never, I didn't meet a living writer until I got to college, and then thought, oh, maybe this is something that I could do. But even then, I didn't think that I could make a living doing it. But it was really sort of graduating college during this, uh, you know, recession, and thinking, well, I'm not going to get a job anyway. I might as well go to grad school. And it was sort of that those series of decisions that that led me onto this career
1: path. And in grad school, is that where you really started getting? Your words on paper that we're going to print.
0: Yeah, I had been working on the mothers a little bit when I was um, an undergrad, but when I got to grad school, I had three years of time to just focus on that solely and to not only focus on it but also to have a workshop where people were giving me feedback and to have professors read it and give me feedback. So that's when I started to actually finally kind of crack that book that I had been working on and thinking about for all those years.
1: So in your new novel, *The Vanishing Half* you, among lots of other elements, explore the idea of race as a construct, which, you know, begs the question, what does race really mean? What even is this? What is this structure? I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the writing process of that book, uh, where the idea came from, how it began developing for you, and then this idea that you explored inside of it the notion that we can perform race. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of the whole overview of the Vanishing Half?
0: Yeah. So the Vanishing Half actually started the conversation I had with my mother who was very offhandedly one day telling me about this town. She remembered hearing about as a child growing up in rural Louisiana where everyone in the town kind of intermarried so that their children would get lighter and lighter. And it was a very strange idea. <laughs> um, but it immediately struck me as the setting for a novel. And I started to think about the idea of there being twin sisters who come from this town and they decide to live in two different directions. One is a white woman and one is a black woman. And, you know, I think as to the question that you asked at the beginning, that's entirely the question that I'm interested in the book. You know, what is race and what does it mean to perform race? And what does race mean if we can't just perform it? And I think those are entirely the questions that I'm really interested in. I want to think about this character journeying from growing up in this segregated and rural town in Louisiana and entering into this white world, having to, and having to learn how to appropriately perform whiteness and always kind of doing it wrong. Like she's never, she never kind of figures it out because the context in which she has experienced white people were as a black woman in Louisiana, and then she eventually enters this very different world of, of wealth and, and status and power that's very different than the world that she knew. So she has to perform class, she has to perform whiteness in this way that's convincing and she never quite does it correctly. So I just kept thinking about, about those questions. I think sometimes when you say that race is a construct, people assume that you mean that race is not real. But that's not what I mean. Uh, what I mean is that there's nothing inevitable about it. You know, there's nothing inevitable about sort of racial categories, or even biological. Yet at the same time, while there are, you know, there's a flimsiness to race <laughs> as, a, as a construct, the idea that this person can, can, you know, Stella walks into a building and she is assumed to be white, so then she becomes white. So there there's a flimsiness to it, yet at the same time, it has very real implications on all of our lives. It affects where these characters live and where they can you know buy a house and who they can marry and what their kids look like and where their kids go to school and what types of jobs they have and all of these things down to essentially you know where characters are buried on which side of the segregated cemetery the idea that something that is so flimsy can affect our lives in such concrete and real ways to me it was something about the tension between those two ideas that i found really challenging and interesting to explore in this book
1: When you set out to write it, I'm curious, how developed is the idea for you at the beginning? Are you a real loose, loosey-goosey, basic outline? We'll we'll see what the characters have to say. Or do you have a a really clear idea of who everyone is, where they're going, what the story arc is going to be? I love the process of, of fiction writers. It's just so fascinating to me. And they're all over the map, so it's not one path through at all. Yeah.
0: No, I have no idea. I usually know where I want to start. I think with all of my projects, I've known where I wanted to open. So I knew I wanted to start the book with Desiree, who's one of the twin sisters, returning to her town with holding the hands of her her really dark-skinned daughter and that causing a stir. I knew I wanted to start there. I had no idea where I was going to end up. I had no idea what was going to happen to Stella, if we were going to find out, when we were going to find out. To me, that is the joy of drafting, is not knowing and really just following what's fun and what's exciting to you as you're writing. I think that the work is what comes in later when you're revising and you're trying to make sense of all of it. But for me, as far as those early drafts, there are no rules. I don't know what's going to happen. Anything that happens is fine. I'm just going to go in the direction of what's exciting and what's fun and, and see where I end up.
1: I can't handle it. I mean, like, that's so do your characters come to you? Do you know what I mean? Like, do they tell you where they want to go? Does that make sense? Oh, I mean,
0: I don't know if it's, if I think about it in that way, but I usually have a sense, like I had a sense kind of of what Stella was like and what Desiree was like. But I think for me, it's more of, of sort of kind of unpeeling as you go on. Like you have the idea of this very, you know, it's, I, I think of it like that more than like, you know, forgive all of these terrible metaphors, but like, I don't think of it as like chiseling the sta you know, you have the block and you're chiseling it. I don't think of it as that. It's more like you're unpeeling it, you know, because you have this, and I, I think that's the way that you get to know somebody, right? You, you see them and you, you know, make judgments and you make assumptions based on how they immediately present themselves. And then as you get to know them, you get deeper and you get deeper and you get deeper, and then you start to figure out who they really are. And I think that's how I think of as characters as I had maybe know one thing about this person in the beginning, but the more I start thinking about them and the more I start seeing them in different situations, seeing them face problems and, and feel uncomfortable and be challenged. That's when I start to really figure out who they are.
1: I love it. When you were writing the vanishing half, was there ever a moment or an experience reaction, anything that even took you by surprise where you're like, this is how this has to be. Like, this is- <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there were several moments. Like I said, I, I, I had no plan writing it. So, so, so much of it took me by surprise. But I think really figuring out the story beyond that sort of opening, okay, this person returns to her hometown and then what? I had no idea what was going to happen beyond that. So figuring that out, and then I think eventually realizing that I wanted to go into the, the second generation of that family and to look at these estranged sisters and, and their daughters and that, those relationships. That wasn't what I originally planned to do. I thought I was just going to write about the sisters. So once I went to that next generation, then sort of anything was, was kind of up for grabs because I had no idea what, what the world of these daughters would look like. And that became really exciting. So it's, it's strange. It's a, it's a fun and, I mean, I love drafting. Like I, you know? I don't hate revising, but I love drafting. Yeah, I think it's fun. You feel like just like a kid playing in a sandbox, you know?
1: Okay, that's something that a writer's writer says. <laughs> that, that's a true writer thing to say right there. <laughs> How long did it take you, like, from kind of you put your fingers on the keyboard and you type the first sort of bit of it to the last draft?
0: Uh, it took, I think, about four years.
1: Yeah, dang. Wow. Ugh, that is a real commitment to the craft. right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was challenging. It was a challenging book to try to figure out how to organize.
1: What are you working on now?
0: I'm working on third novel. And yeah, it's about a, a rivalry between uh, two singers. So it's really fun. Two fun singers? To, yeah, it's been fun to do something really different
1: than, than the role of Vanishing Half. Is it a modern context?
0: Uh, no, there's sort of backstory. There's kind of a present storyline, but also there's backstory. So. The bulk of it, the singers were really famous in the 60s and 70s, mostly. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the bulk me. of the story. But, but yeah, but it's been really fun. It's, I've never written anything about music. I don't play any, and I have no musical talent. I just appreciate it. So sure. it's fun to to write about these musical careers that do not exist.
1: <laughs> so does that mean you had to do a, a pretty, your fair share of research?
0: I mean, I read a lot of uh, tell-alls. I've read a lot of memoirs and you know it didn't feel like research it just felt fun to be like let me read this book about Diana Ross like sure so yeah so it's been yeah I've I've done some reading uh on on you know different musicians and mostly I mean pretty much all women that were performing during the era in which I'm writing and the type of music that I'm writing about so so there's some research a lot of listening to music which has been really fun and a lot just thinking about about these women who were once friends and become enemies and it's it's a fun it's a fun type of Relationship to write about, which is very different than anything that I've I've written about so far. I think.
1: Is it too soon to have a title, or would you have to kill it?
0: it. <laughs> there is no title yet. Now, unfortunately,
1: yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> and can you even tell us this is about when you might see this finished masterpiece (laughs) no (laughs) because
0: right now it's 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 (laughs) total nonsense right now so i cannot even tell you when it, it will be coherent let alone like readable so unfortunately i don't know but i'm having fun again in that early stage of just just playing
1: good for you that's exciting With holidays coming up, it is time to start thinking about gifts that people will use over and over again. And spoiler alert to my friends and family, but you are all getting feature socks in your stockings and I'm not sorry. Features socks are more than just stocking stuffers though. They're they're engineered with like a custom like fit to prevent bunching and slipping and friction and blisters. Plus, Features has a sock for literally whatever you need. If you want socks that are cushioned and supportive for running around, they have them. If you want some warm, colorful crew socks for lounging around when it gets colder, they have them. And if you need socks to help you recover from an injury or if you have special foot care needs, they have all kinds of compression and therapeutic socks just for you. Listen, you may think socks aren't a big deal, but I beg to differ. Right now, I am loving these. High-performance ankle socks from Features that have a little cushion, so they're super comfy without being huge and bulky, and they're perfect if I'm just out and about or lounging at home, whatever. Plus, if I go out for a walk, they don't slip down into my shoe, which I hate, and I never get blisters wearing these, ever. Features has a great deal for my listeners. They'll give you $10 off your first pair when you go to features.com and use my code for the love. Great deal. So let me spell that for you because this is cute. It's features, F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S dot com. See what they did there? And enter promo code for the love at checkout. You'll love these, I promise. So one more time, that's features.com and use my code for the love to get $10 off your first pair. All right, back to our show. Okay. I want to wrap it up here with you. These are some questions that we're actually asking everybody in this series. And so here's the first one. And obviously this could be a, you could have a ton of answers here. So just whittle it down. However you want for you, who have been some of your greatest role models?
0: Oh, interesting. I guess, yeah, my parents, you know, I think like my, my mother's was the one who gave me the love of reading. She's the reader in the family. So my mother is hugely influential to me and that way as far as my entire career and sort of everything in my world that's based on books. But I think my father also has taught me so much and he's kind of where I get more of my analytical side from. (laughs) So definitely my parents in that way. I guess started sort of of literary role models. I mean, definitely, you know, sort of all of the greats, uh, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Zora Neale Hurston, Jasmine Ward, Dorothy Allison. These are all writers that I just love and continue to study.
1: I mean, that was a roll call of the great. (laughs) Yeah. You just rattled off right there.
0: Yeah.
1: Who are some of your, your personal favorite, either artists or teachers or leaders or innovators that you would like us to be listening to and paying attention to and learning from or supporting?
0: Yeah, I mean, as far as artists, like I said, I love, I mean, the I love Michaela Cole, I think that she's a genius, Uh, but I thought that she was a genius for quite a while now. I think I May Destroy You is one of the most brilliant television shows I've ever seen. I just cannot imagine the tonal shifts that that show goes through where you're laughing and then you're cringing and then you're crying. And then like, there's just, I don't know how she does it. I would just love to just peek inside her brain, but I think that she's incredible. Um, I think, you know, a bunch of the the writers that I was talking about earlier, I think, yeah, I mean, I think those are, those are a lot of people whose work I find to be really interesting and, and instrumental. I just, finished reading Stakes is High by Michael Denzel Smith just came out on Tuesday. The subtitle is Life After the American Dream. So it's not at all uplifting. It's very real. But it's weirdly a book that feels like it sort of the point at which he finished writing it was before pandemic and any things that had happened this year. But it feels weirdly like it predicted all of these things that emerged from our all of the things that are broken within our culture. So that that's a book that I found to be a, ch- a challenging read, but also a very
1: sobering one. So if you're listening, we will be sure to link to all of these authors and artists and that book particularly. Last question. And we ask every guest this question, but you can answer this however you want. It can be serious. It can be ridiculous, big or small. So you pick. But This is a question I learned from a leader of mine that I love. Anyway, here's the question: What is saving your life right now?
0: I think my friendships. That was like my gut reaction when you asked that question. Definitely my friendships. You know, I've been I was quarantining by myself from like March till July, and then I went and saw my family over the summer, and then I'm by myself again. But I think if not for my friends, who you know, who I've been able to see out across the park when I have, but also who have you know, scheduled Zoom calls and Zoom book clubs and Zoom drinks, all the things that we're all doing right now, I truly, truly would have lost my mind in, in isolation. So I'm so grateful for my friends to for for supporting me and and just being there, I think, at this time in which, you know, we're all reevaluating the things that really matter to us. And to me, that has been certainly one of my takeaways from this moment is just how grateful I am to have friends in my life. Even if I cannot see them, that these are still people who care about me and check in on me and, and, and feed into my life.
1: Absolutely. Same. I can't even think of an alternative without the friends, even virtually or weirdly separated across yeah. some grass. Yeah. Whatever it is right now. What exactly. a weird time. It is. It is yes. time. Well, Brett, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and just for being who you are, it's so exciting to watch your career just rise. Thank I mean, you. you are just, you're in your twenties, right? How old are you? I th- just turned 30. Oh my <laughs> God. What's ahead of you? It's just so exciting to think about like what stories lie inside of you. What is, what's going to come to bear, what you're going to write for the world. It's, I'm thrilled Thank you. to watch you and you're a such a special talent. Thanks for being on the show today. I'm cheering you on, sis. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Okay, everybody. There she is in all of her like young, magical talent. Run, don't walk, to your bookstore and pick up her books: The Vanishing Half, the most recent. You'll be so glad she did. I'm just telling you, she's she's on her way, you guys. Britt Bennett. You'll know her name. Such a special talent and gift to the world and important stories to consume and to purchase, right? That matters. Our buying dollars signals to the industry, this is what we're interested in. These stories, these kinds of writers, more of this. And so it matters. It matters what we buy and who we read, delighted to have had her on the show today and to have her in this entire series, which I have loved. And you have too. thank you for your incredible response to this series and for sharing it and subscribing to it and joining the discussion around it. Our entire podcast team is so grateful for you and delighted to bring you this work week in and week out, these conversations that matter to us and we know matter to you too. So thanks for being here guys. And we will see you next week.